0: I don't know what kind of home you grew up in or what kind of model of love and marriage was displayed for you Um, that, you know, that maybe that you found you learned from in your formative years of life. Some of you may not have had any kind of model of marriage relationship in your home, or maybe you grew up with a severely dysfunctional one. Some of you, maybe you watched parents that had the kind of marriage that has become a goal for you, and, and maybe for some of you has become an idol. Other of you have probably most likely, most of yours, is maybe something in between. There are aspects about your parents' marriage that you're like, I hope that our, my marriage looks like that, and then there are some other aspects you're like, yeah, I'm definitely, when I get married, it's not going to look like that. And if you're young and not married, and you have those thoughts Just hold on to those because most likely when you get married, you find that you end up making the same mistakes. But that's just kind of how it goes. It's how it rolls. And regardless of your experience, here's what I know about all of us, though. We all carry some flawed expectations about love and marriage. And for those of us who do get married and pursue love with the hopes of getting married, we carry these expectations with us. And when things don't go quite the way we thought they would, we become really disappointed. That's just kind of what happens when our expectations do not meet the realities of what we're experiencing in life. And our flawed expectations of what love and marriage are supposed to be are also why many married people aren't divorced yet, but have settled for coexisting with absolutely no intimacy. And here's what's happening in our culture, and this is no surprise to anyone, we all know this. Marriage is taking a major hit because the message that comes across is that marriage, by and large, is either irrelevant, or it's lame, or it's boring. And even though most current research tells us that, I don't know if you, I, I was actually surprised by this, I was doing some research on this. Uh, did you know that over the past 20 years, divorce rates have actually dropped significantly, like by 30%. Um, yeah the CDC just put out new studies on that, and uh, they have uh, these studies and, and it 's called crude data it 's versus percentage wise and now you can make percentage out of it, but it 's basically like how many divorces per one thousand people that 's a more accurate way to just to, to get the landscape of uh, divorce rates and and it went from i think it went from eight to like five or four point five or something like that per per thousand people. But even though divorce rates are going down, um, marriage rates has also dropped 30%. This is what we all know. And as a result of the realities of what is happening in mainstream culture, there seems to be a growing sense that the only choice you have in life when it comes to your relationship status is that you're either A, single and lonely, or B, married and lame, right? That's kind of just the two boxes that you're in. And here's what we all know that most people know. We don't prefer, most people at least, as most normal people I think, don't prefer being lonely. Now if you're like I do, and are you saying I'm not normal? Here's what I'm saying. Even extreme introverts, people who like to be lonely, by and large still want to be people who are loved. And by and large want to be the kind of people who are loving others in return. And nobody wants to live a boring life either. Like So maybe it's not about the whole issue of, of being lonely. Maybe, nobody wants to live a boring life. Now, obviously, that's something that would come out of the mouth of an Enneagram 7. <laughs> like, life is supposed to be fun. Um, uh, uh, but, you know, other Enneagrams would say, well, no, life is supposed to be productive. Um, and so, but, but no one, I don't know, do any of the Enneagrams want to have a boring life? No? No? Maybe? No, yes, nobody, everybody wants to have a fulfilled life. And unfortunately, people want the best of both worlds. They want the freedom of the single life and the sense of completeness that they get from being in a romantic relationship with another person. And they settle for something less than ideal, but what the world around us has determined as normal or even necessary um, has become kind of this new reality that we see in our culture, which is this idea of cohabitation with a sexual partner. And the question I want to ask is, like, how is that working for us, like, as a society? How is it working for us? If it's really, it's not. Just so you know, it's not. Despite what your friends will tell you, uh, despite what the blog posts will tell you, it's just so funny, like, when I read blog posts about cohabitation before marriage and everyone who has a blog about it will say it's great and here's the reason why and in fact it's the best but if you look at the hard data i mean just google cohabitation relationship statistics you'll know it's not working for us it's not working for us and the fact that we can get that information within seconds (laughs) like literally you could go google hey google And search. The fact that we can get that information in seconds also proves us that we live in a world that not only gives us a plethora of information regarding love and marriage if we wanted to find it, but we are also living in a world where there are more voices trying to influence your thoughts on what it means to pursue love and marriage. And, and after almost five years without a series specifically on this subject of love and marriage, believe it or not, I haven't spoken on this subject in over five years. I wanted to address this subject for two reasons. First of all is this. Uh, for a follower of Jesus, the reality is that we are living in the world that I just described. Like, this is the reality of our world. People in your spheres of influence are being exposed to social media clips or maybe even listening to podcasts. To glean information about what it means to pursue love, what it means to have a good marriage. And even if they're not on social media, cause I know that, I mean, I know some of you are like, oh, I'm not a social media person, and I feel like everybody I know is not on it anymore. Here's what we know, statistically speaking, current statistics tells us that 90% of Americans actively use social media. And that, that's not a for or against thing, I'm just, it's just a statistic. So which means that, which means this, which means that the people around us, a majority of the people around us are being exposed to this content in one way or another. And if you are on social media, you'll know. There's a lot of people out there with ideas and they're more than willing to tell you about how marriage is supposed to be and what it's not. They'll be able to tell you about your kids and what you're supposed to do. I mean, there's so much information out there. Do you ever feel like there's just too much information? Now, why is this important? Because this means that there are multiple opportunities in your life, listen, to speak the gospel with clarity regarding regarding how the scripture points us to a better way for understanding and pursuing relationships. This is the reason why I want to talk about it. It's not necessarily about improving your own journey of having healthy relationships. It's this fact. We live in a world where this is talked about and we're, we're understanding this, and, and we see this. And because this is the reality of the climate of our situation, I believe you're going to have an opportunity to speak the gospel into the realities of what I see are dysfunctional models of relationship. And I want you to be equipped to know how to speak into it instead of just going, Oh, I'm so sorry. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, that, that's That's tough. Oh, yeah, I know how you feel. Uh, My husband, too. Oh, yeah, my wife, too. Oh, yeah, my brother-in-law and his wife. Uh Instead of just stopping at having some type of common bond with people who are wrestling with how do you journey through having healthy relationships and healthy marriages, you can have the opportunity to speak the gospel. And this is the reason why, I wanted to talk about this because I want you to know how the gospel should inform how we view our relationships. And I want you to know where it comes from in the scripture. Like, I want you to be able to have conversations with people and be like, yeah, yeah, the scripture says, and and, and you don't have to be like, yeah, somewhere in there, somewhere in there, but you can actually go like, you know what? Here's where the scripture talks about it. Second, So the first reason I want to talk about this is to equip equip you to be gospel proclaimers in the realities of your everyday life When it comes to this idea of relationships, trust me in the culture that we have You're going to have opportunities to speak the gospel, but you're not going to do it if you're not ready and two You're not going to be able to do it If you're not looking for it, and I want you to look for it second To anyone and everyone who wants to genuinely pursue marriage in a way that is fully informed, regardless of your faith background, I wanted to give an opportunity for you to wrestle with and confront your personal beliefs and opinions with the scripture about what it means to pursue healthy relationship with someone who either will be or is your spouse. So, this is why in week one we looked, to the beginning of the gospel story if you remember we look to Genesis 1 and we begin exploring this concept that God does not give us a spouse to complete us but to what compliment us God does not give us a spouse to complete us but to complement us and during that message we learned that the scripture teaches us that marriage is not the pinnacle of human relationships but what our relationship with God is the pinnacle of human relationships. And then last week we looked at how the gospel casts a greater vision for our lives that pursuing a certain kind of preferred status relationship falls short of. We learned that Jesus taught and we learned that his disciples wrote about it in letters we now call books of the Bible that living out the mission of God matters more than our relationship status. Living out the mission of God matters more than our relationship status. And if you were there last week, you know I shared what I felt were some practical ways you could begin discerning what it means to not only pursue the mission of God, but how to figure out what that looks like for your life personally. But today I want to look at something that a person by the name of John wrote about regarding what it means to understand what love is. Because we can't talk about the idea of love and marriage without at least talking about what is love. What is love, baby? Everybody, everybody. So I think this perspective really that John has is valid for a couple of reasons. First, so as you I just want to invite you to open up to John chapter four. We're gonna be in first John four. First John four. The reason why I think this passage is valid is 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 really two reasons first john was arguably one of jesus's best friends during his earthly ministry in fact john was what bible scholars refer to as jesus's three closest friends if you remember who they were one of them was a guy who got his foot stuck in his mouth all the time by the name of who anyone know peter peter and then there was two brothers james and john and these were like jesus's best friends and so john was really good friends with jesus second john was also the person referred to in the scripture multiple times as the disciple jesus guess what love yep you knew it disciple jesus loved in fact five times in one book of the bible now granted it was a book that john himself wrote so that's kind of weird to be like you know refer to yourself oh the one that jesus loved but If you think that's weird, just remember, John released this gospel while many of the disciples were still alive. And if they wanted to, they could have been like, hold up, bro. I think you're taking this out of context. You weren't the one Jesus loved, but they didn't. And so there we know that there's truth to what John is saying. So the question I, I want us to kind of wrestle with today is this question right here. What does John have to say about love and how does it challenge us to reorient our perspectives and beliefs about love and marriage? Like, What, is, what does John have to say and then how does it reorient our perspectives and beliefs? This is the question I want to tackle today and so at the end of our time together, you and I can begin to evaluate love in your life In light of the gospel, like however you are displaying love now currently, and however you think of love currently, I want to encourage you to take what John has to say and use that to begin to evaluate what you think is love in your life and in the relationships of your life. And so, First John chapter four. I got to turn there. I haven't turned there yet. Are you there yet? Did you beat me? I bet you did. First John 4, 7, it says this. Dear friends, let us love one another, because love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. If you grew up in the church, you might be familiar with the song, right? Beloved. Let us love one another. Doom 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 for do, do. love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not... Oh, come on. He wanted to do it. Knoweth not God, for God is love. And then he goes, well, beloved, let us love one another. Thank you, all two of you. All right. Anyways, nobody wants to play the game with me today. That's all right. Now... It should be made clear that when John says everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God, he is using language that his readers who are all Christians understand. And what is this understanding? Because I think it's easy to look at this and go like, oh, okay, so if you love other people, then you're from God. That's not really how the language goes. It's, this is the, this is the, issue of the transliteration, of transliterating word for word in the order, but in the original language, and as people would have understood this, they would have understood that only though, that what, Paul, that what John was saying was this, not Paul, John was saying this, that only those who've been born of God are the people who can possess this kind of love he's describing. They would have understood, oh, yes, it makes sense that people born of God have this kind of love. That's how they would have understood it if I was to use language of today. In fact, in his gospel, John wrote this in John 1. But to all who did receive him, this is Jesus he's speaking to, he gave them the right to be children of God, to to those who believe in his name. Who were what? Born, not of natural descent, or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. Like, I don't know if you understand this, like followers of Jesus. There's, I I know in the, in the eighties, there was like this real big thing where you're like, Hey, are you a Christian? Yeah. Yeah. But are you born again? Right. Does anyone remember like where that was like a real big thing? Like there was a delineating factor of like, well, you may be a Christian, but Hey, are you a, are you born again? (laughs) Right. So that was like a thing, but that is a truth that I think, I don't hear many people talking about this idea of being born again. Being born again, and this is really an important thing to understand, especially if you're someone who hasn't figured out if you really believe everything you've heard about Jesus and the Bible. Because experiencing love as God intended, and as you and I were designed to enjoy it, it cannot be accomplished by simply putting into practice the application points of today's message. It can't be attained by putting the application points of any book on marriage. Following the application points may approve your relationships, it may improve it, but it won't fully allow you to experience love as God intended it. Because experiencing true love requires experiencing new birth. Experiencing true love requires experiencing new birth. As one Bible scholar would say, In his commentary of this passage, he writes this, we are not born with it, neither can we learn it. Believers receive God's love only through the Holy Spirit. It cannot be attained by an act of human will. It has absolutely nothing to do with human planning. It comes from God as a gift. Paul go on, Paul would go on in first John here. To make himself more clear by saying this in verse 8. The one who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. For those of you who have studied the Bible over the years. may be familiar with the reality that back when Jesus was on earth. There were actually different words to describe all the kinds of loves that you and I have. And when the scripture talks about God's love it uses the word what? Agape. This word. Agape. Uses the word agape. And to be clear, agape is not the kind of love that says, I love the weather outside today. It's so beautiful. I love it. Right? That's not the, the kind of love that he's talking about. Or for those of you, I think this is an 80s weekend. I don't know why. I just felt really tied to my 80s roots. Um, it's also not this. The kind of love that says, I love it when a plan comes together. Anybody know? A-team? A-team? Right, thank you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Your parents raised you right. 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 I love it when a plan comes together. It's this kind of indescribable. Agape is an indescribable, unconditional and complete love that is totally dependent, listen, on the character of the lover, not the performance of the beloved. This is what God's agape love does for humanity. this is why John says this in his attempts to reorient his reader's perspective on what true love is. In verse 9, he says this. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice. For our sins. Now, I don't know about you and how you feel about yourself, but when I think about who God is, I and I look at my own life, I don't know if I find anything really inherently worthy about me. <laughs> That the God of the universe, if anything, should know my name. Like, there's nothing about me. In fact, I believe that inside each and every one of us, there are a number of things that make us unworthy of that. For one, I I know I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. And that I have rejected God who has created me by choosing to live life my way instead of his way, for my glory, instead for his glory. And many times I have turned my back on him, but despite that, all while I, me, while you, while all of us were still sinners, God sent his son Jesus to this earth to die on a cross so that we could be forgiven and be given the chance to live in a truly restored relationship where uh, agape love exists with him and, get this, with others. With others. And that kind of love, that's the kind of love that I think that changes everything. Because it changes the core of our identity. Because that kind of love is not based on who we are or what we've done. It's not based on anything that we've earned. It's the kind of love that in spite of our unworthiness and amid our mess and brokenness gives us incredible value. And here's the good news if we choose to believe it. We are deeply loved not because of who we are or what we've done. But because of who God is and what all He has done and what He has promised to do. In fact, a commentary of this first John passage says this, love so conceived is not to be understood as one of God's many activities, but rather that all His activity is loving activity if He creates He creates in love. If he rules, he rules in love. If he judges, he judges in love. All that he does is the expression of his nature to love. This is because love is a part of God's essence. And so God loves us because of who he is, not because of who we are. And because God loves us like that, our value as human beings is dependent on his character and not our performance. Now, okay, so what then is the application of this passage of Scripture? Well, first, let's look at what John says, and then I'll do my best to maybe contextualize it in a way that maybe helps make it easier to understand what John— uh, if, if really what John says here that we read— Isn't clear enough. Here's what it says in verse 11. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us and his love is made complete in us. If love is being defined by the value of the loved one, instead of the character of the loving one, love will never be what it's supposed to be. Christ's character was the definition of what love was, despite the fact that we were living in opposition and rebellion to him. In other words, maybe another way to say it is this. Uh, intrinsic value. You know what intrinsic value? Like the value that is given to you because you exist. The intrinsic value, intrinsic value was not a condition for God's demonstration of love through Jesus. You didn't have to be worth anything for God to say, I love you so much that I will send my only son to die for you. There is nothing about you that earned that. Everything about the love of God through Jesus communicates a choice to give value. Everything about the love of God communicates a choice to give value despite the unworthiness of the one being loved. Now, a couple uh, let' see where are we at? Yeah No, I didn't do your wedding. Did your wedding? Did your wedding. And at every wedding, uh Russ Berg has a watch that he uses. And I never brought this because, well, it just seemed a little inappropriate and I hate to get it lost. But every wedding, um, I talk about this stuffed animal. My mom is here today, and she'll remember it was sometime in the late eighties. I was probably six years old. Uh we were we were going garage sale shopping, which my mom did Every weekend, we did, we went, we were at the garage sale or we were at the DAV or the Salvation Army, like getting clothes. That's where where we got most of our clothes as a kid. Um, And I remember I saw this animal, and it didn't look like this. It had stuffing. (laughs) And it had two eyes at one time. It had two eyes at one time. And um, I said, I want that. And she's like, okay, you go ahead. You get it. You get it. And I got him, and I loved him, and I named him. You remember, Mom? <laughs> oh, the, the name only a little kid could give a stuff in him. His name was Quack Quack. That was his name. Quack Quack was his name. Quack Quack was his name. Now, um, over the years, I mean, there's a hole in here now. And, yeah, I mean, this thing is 80s, what, 40 years old. Almost well it was because it was used when I already got it, so I would say let's just be at thirty five years old, and over the years it was well loved my sister and I, I remember we played with him because you can make him stand up, watch this, so we used to make him like we'd put him in the hallways and we'd make we'd pretend he was doing i don't know just we'd just play with them and um, and I, I love this I love this stuffed animal, and then I remember mom, remember when the remember when i, I I would throw him to my sister (laughs) to pretend he was flying. And one day we did it, and he flew, and he hit the driveway, and that's how he lost an eye. And mom, we went to all stores, and we tried to find an eye to replace it. Could not find it, and so he has remained thus far (laughs) the one-eyed duck. Now, over the years, um, I kept him with me because he was kind of like my blankie, He went with me to college, even though nobody knew. Stayed in a bag under my bed. Um, Then I would pull it out and cry when I was little. No, I didn't do that. (laughs) Or maybe I did, and I'm not telling you. Um, But then eventually I had a kid, and this became Brennan's quack quack. Now, his quack quack didn't look anything like my version of a quack quack. It looked exactly like this. And you know what? He loved quack quack. And he told me he was never going to speak to me again if I brought him up. But that's okay. Because when we talk about the love of God today, he'll learn a lesson. That love is not based on the value of the one receiving it, but it's based on the one giving it. And... He didn't love this stuffed animal because of it's value. There was no value in this thing. Trust me, you could try to sell this on Facebook Marketplace and you could not get rid of it for free. And there are tons of people out there who take crazy stuff for free. <laughs> like, you would not be able to get rid of this. And so he didn't love this because it was valuable. Rather, it was valuable because it was loved. Okay. Okay. Put you back down here. When it comes to relationships, including marital relationships, one column, common element exists. They are made up of people with faults and failures and the certainty of imperfection. And if there's one thing that I've learned over the years from learning from others who have been married for 50, 60 years, and from what I've learned from almost 20 years of marriage, is that neither husband or wife is ever really fully deserving of the love that they receive from each other. Like, when I even look at my own relationship and I think of all the things that my wife does for me, do I deserve that? (laughs) No. No. And it's for this reason that marriage in itself is a perfect picture of the gospel. And what is that? Well, it was inspired by something Tim Keller once wrote. Here is kind of my take of what I think the gospel is. That we are more flawed and messed up and sinful than we ever want to admit. But at the same time, we are more forgiven and loved and accepted by God through Jesus Christ than we can ever imagine. This is the gospel. And in the context of human relationships we called marriage, we get the opportunity to experience just a little taste of the deep, unconditional, unbelievable, and divine love we were created for. If our marriages function the way God would have them, we get this opportunity. And so we learn that God doesn't use marriage to make people complete. God uses marriage to make people reflect the gospel. And there's a lot of things, there's a lot of things that we think about, and a lot of, there's a lot of reasons why people get married. I don't know if I've ever heard, and I know I haven't, at 24 years old, I was not thinking this. But I don't know if I've ever heard anyone say, I want to get married so that I am empowered with a tangible witness of the gospel in this world. Because God doesn't use marriage to make people complete. God uses marriage to make people reflect the gospel. Relationships are not easy and marital relationships are definitely not easy. In every relationship, there will be conflict, and conflict can either bring two people together or they can tear them apart. And to my married friends or to those who hope to be married one day, conflict will tear you apart if your love is solely based on the perceived value of the other person. If your love is based on what they're bringing to the table in light of what you bring to the table. And every fault, every failure, and every fight or every imperfection has the potential to make that kind of love, a love that based it on whether or not someone else brings it to the table, a love that isn't like God's agape love, it will cause love to fade. And this is an easy mindset to slip into because it's how the world around us defines love. I've hit a new point in my ministry life where for years I used to be able to go, everyone I've married hasn't gotten divorced. (laughs) And as of recently I'm starting to see that I can't like be like, hey, I have a hundred percent marriage rate, you know. And I'm beginning to see the trend not only among the people that I know personally that I've had the honor of coming alongside them in their journey of marriage, but as I look at the world around us, it feels natural and it seems logical. And we even, I hear people when they talk about like how they, how they ended up getting divorced. They would say things like, you know, it just, I don't even know when it started, but we just kind of, we kind of just, drifted, right? You know, I don't know when it kind of began, but we just kind of lost that loving feeling. And now it's gone. 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 Whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh, whoa. Oh, whoa. (laughs) Sorry. But the good news is this. Here's the good news. If we take First John 4 to heart that God's love is an incredible and divine love that creates value in the object of its affection and allow your theology, not just your psychology, to be the lens through which you view all of your decisions, then this agape love can become the mindset and perspective through which a husband and a wife can view each other. And is the only guarantee that a marriage will be able to weather the storms of life that will inevitably come your way. But there is one thing this kind of love requires. It requires a decision, though. To love one another, despite the feelings, despite the performance, despite the fears and the faults, And the failures. And the good news is that we can love like that because it's the kind of love God has for us. And gives to us when you believe that his love compelled Jesus to die as a ransom for us. For the penalty for our sins. Even though we didn't deserve it. And your love for your spouse will never be all it could be if you settle for anything less. If you settle for a love that rests upon the value you see in the other. But your love for each other can be everything that God designed it to be. As long as you stay committed to loving one another as God loves. To decide that your love for one another will be based on the character of the one who loves which is a high responsibility, like when you think about it. Which means we need to be engaged in the pathway of discipleship, of growing more and more like Jesus if we want to display this God-like kind of love, this agape kind of love. Our love can be everything that God designed it to be when we base it on the character of the one who loves and not the performance of the beloved. Beloved. To decide to love with God's kind of agape, unconditional, and unbelievable love.